Skiffy and Fanti Show. Space Kill Bluey with Marco Close. Welcome to the show, Marco. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, we have a bunch of questions because we know you have a new book coming out in the Frontline series. Mm-hmm. You have written now technically six, although the sixth is out in January. Right. Um, and they're military SF and they're a lot of fun and they're crazy. So the first question I want to ask is why military SF? Because I like to read military SF and when okay. I decided really putting the pedal to the metal with the writing and trying to get something written that was publication-worthy. I figured you know, if, I, if I like reading Military SF, it's probably also fun writing it. And luckily, that was the case. <laughs> so I know on your, your bio has said uh, you know, you've had a, a, a wide range of different kinds of jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. you've been in the military, so I think we'll probably ask about that. Um, you've been an, an IT technician. Uh, I think you said you worked at a, at a dock at some point. Yeah, loading uh, dock. like. Trucks loading up trucks in the middle of the night, you know, a warehouse where, you know, with like 40 loading ports where the trucks would back up in the middle of the night and then we'd have to unload and load trucks. So you've done all of this this different kind of work. Uh, and I guess the question I'm getting to is, were you, did you always want to be a writer? Or was that something you kind of like came to a little bit later? Um, I've always written, but I didn't really think about making that like a, trying to make this a full-time career until uh, until I went to Viable Paradise, uh, a writing workshop, and I got the affirmation there that I actually had stuff that was good enough for publication or try to get it public, uh, get it um, published. Okay, so you got a kind of a, a confidence boost, as it were, yes. that maybe this is a thing you should really give a shot to. Yes, okay. yeah, when, when when a lot of the top names in the industry that were the instructors there, you know, look at your stuff and they go, this is not bad, this is pretty good actually. <laughs> You're like, hey, maybe I should try and sell this. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good reason. Um, okay, so what, as I said, right, you obviously, your military career has had some impact, I imagine, on your work. Uh, yes. Because uh, you served in the West German military mm-hmm. in 1989, if I recall correctly. 1989 to 1993, yeah. And so beyond some of the obvious things, right, the fact that being in the military obviously has some impact on your being able to write uh, a military perspective, uh, what other influences would you say come from your military experience into your work? Um, the whole, everything about Frontlines, basically, because Frontlines is not like, there's space opera out there and there's stuff like other military science fiction like for example the stuff that David Weber writes mm-hmm. which is like the, the whole big picture thing all the political intrigue and all the multiple viewpoints and all this high level stuff um, that that is like uh, you know you have the micro and the macro level of perspectives 
and I wanted to have front lines just being the the macro level, like right the, the guy on the ground. We only see what he sees, and because it's all first person present tense, it's very like immediate, and we only see what young master Ender sees. Um, I wanted to have a military science fiction novel that was or a series. Uh, originally, I wanted the novel. I didn't plan for it to be a six book series. It just turned out that way. But I wanted to have a series where the the whole focus was on the guy on the ground, like the not and not even like the high ranking ones, just the the guys who have to do all the fighting and the dying. I, I kind of like to describe it as pro soldier but anti war. Okay, little Haldeman. Yeah, in a way. Kind, yeah, yes, kind of. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll, I'll throw uh, one to Paul. That yeah. that, that, that that does uh, lead me into my question. So you mentioned David Weber. We just mentioned Earl Haldeman. What other authors in space opera and military SF have you? Read and learned from in writing your own series. Um, Robert Heinlein, obviously, um, John Scalzi, um, all the all the classics, pretty much. And and um, Haldeman was a huge influence. Um, I didn't set out to go. Oh, I want to be just like you know, do something sociocritical, just like Haldeman. I just read all the stuff, and and that kind of informed my writing. Is that you can write good military sci-fi that can still be kind of like critical of like the military machine and bureaucracies and the stupidity of humanity or the stuff that we sometimes do even when we're under threat of extinction we still can't resist screwing with each other <laughs> all that stuff is how you can do that without sounding preachy or without you know just taking the big political hammer and club clubbing everybody over the head with it it informed it, it me a lot like you have to it, it wasn't i didn't have a stack of reading material to to gather and read before I start writing because I've been reading those all along because that's what I like to read. But mm-hmm. it's, it's I can see now in retrospect how all those influences kind of like thread through my books too because I take a little bit of this and take a little bit of that, like the little bit of the the aspects critical of the military bureaucracy that Haldeman does. But Haldeman was Joe Haldeman was in, in Vietnam, so he wanted to work up his own war experiences. And then no, I never went to war for the German military, of course, luckily. But it's a lot of the military experience is, is universal, apparently, across militaries, because I get a lot of fan mail from from people who didn't serve in my military. He served, served in other militaries, but who say, you know, it was, it was just like that. That's that's interesting that you, you say there's sort of a universality to military experience. From, from your own perspective, why do you think there, I mean, why do you think there is that universal nature for so many people in the military? Well, for for the Western militaries, it's kind of the same because our rank structure is the same, and and which we cross train with each other all the time, and we so so that we're basically trained to the same standards and have the same organizational structures and the same way of going about doing things, and and the NATO militaries are basically built, were designed during the Cold War to kind of support each other. Like for example, the U.S. Navy had the Blue Water stuff, like the aircraft carriers. And the West German Navy had the frigate Navy, the, the small torpedo boats and the mine clearers and whatever. So they complemented each other. Like the German Navy had a specific job and the U.S. Navy had to do the heavy lifting. But the German Navy was specialized to do the mine clearing in the Baltics and, and uh, deny access in those uh, sort of narrow shipping lanes, which you don't need big aircraft carriers for. So because of all this cross-training and this, this, this interaction of all the, all the NATO armies, um, there's a lot of similarity when it comes to training and equipment and because we were we were all geared to in case of world war three fight together fight a common threat together so our jobs were complementary in our organizations i think that's that's actually really interesting is that i mean on some level we all 
know that the militaries, you know, work, many militaries work together and they do training and all that kind of stuff. But we don't often think of, like, especially from an American perspective, we don't, we tend to think of like America as yeah. its own thing over here and all of them have their own thing and we're not really involved in that. We like America first, but clearly that's not the case. It's no, much more it's, it's, intermixed. Yeah. It's, so. it's the alliance. That's the that's the way the NATO alliance was set up. It was made way more set up then than now because then we were preparing for World War Three against yeah. against the, the Warsaw Pact. But now it's kind of drifting apart again more because other European militaries have scaled down their forces because of finances, and the U.S. military is kind of doing its own thing again without relying on the on the alliance so much. But we're still you know NATO alliance is still NATO alliance, and that's that's the way things are still set up. Um, so, uh, just a point of clarification: uh, what is, what specific role did you have when you were in the German military? I was a light airborne. Um, it used to be called long range reconnaissance patrol. I was a light airborne scout. Um, so we were the guys who would four man team, drop drop fifty miles behind enemy lines, um, unseen, um, dig in at an inter. Very boring job. You you, <laughs> you find an important intersection that has a lot of traffic that you can see with a set of binoculars, and then you dig a hole. And, and dig in for a week or so and then send back everything that you see to, to command so they can get intelligence on, on enemy troop movement. Of course, now, now the job's obsolete because we've been, we've been uh, mm-hmm. uh, downsized and drones can do the job much better and with much less risk to troops mm-hmm. because our, our survival rate in, world, in the case of World War III, our, our instructors used to tell us we had a survival rate of, anticipated survival rate of 2%. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Fold the gap for our menace. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Fold the gap. That's where we would have been. And, that's awesome. So I'm basically, kind of a spy a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, not spy because we were wearing uniforms, but but okay. um, the rumor had it that the that the Warsaw Pact forces would not have looked kindly on people behind so far behind their lines, even if because the rules of war are if you if you're out there and you're in civilian garb and you're military and you're trying to disguise yourself as a civilian, they can execute you on the spot. But uh, oh. you have to wear the the, the proper uniform of your nation to be considered a combatant and get all the. Uh, uh, Rights as a prisoner of war, but a rumor had it that the Soviets weren't really so concerned with the, the niceties of international uh, warfare. Like, had they captured us, they probably would have treated us as spies. That's interesting, but so I didn't know that that was a, a, a significant distinction. Mm-hmm. That that if you're in uniform, or you get if you that different. Yes treatment than if you're a spy, which I guess on some level we, we look at that. It's, a, it's a, actually a legitimate ruse of war that was in, in World War II. They had the German commando troops that were trying to infiltrate American lines that were in American uniforms. And that is a legitimate ruse of war. It's not a violation of, of the laws of warfare. As long as before the fighting starts, you take off the foreign uniform and put on your own. It's like flying a false flag on your on your, <clears throat> on your frigate, like in the Napoleonic Wars, and then yeah. just before you start firing your guns, you haul down. That's why in the movie, you know, Master and Commander, they haul down the <laughs> false flag and and put up their own flag right before the fighting starts, so they can identify themselves properly. So then it's not a war crime. <laughs> okay, well, of course they they find some little cute way to get around those things. I guess, yeah. Uh, well, fantastic. Oh, Paul, I'll throw another so question did, to you. So, so. So in uh, designing Space Kablooey in your series, you've talked about Joe Holdman and Robert Heinlein. Those don't really engage in space battles so much. That's so where, true. So where do you get your inspiration for designing space battles and space explosion? Uh, when I wrote the first two books, I watched a whole lot of Battlestar Galactica, and that was kind of seminal in, like, they did space combat right. 
um, the Newtonian physics and everything, and the, and ratcheting up the tension, and just uh, the fact that uh, the way things usually go in battle, that that uh, all you have to do to write good battle scenes is think about what else can go wrong. You know, what's when you because because it's a it's a maxim in the military that no battle plan ever survives first contact with the enemy, and you want to keep that in mind. And then as you start your battle, your your good guys have your, have that battle plan and everything starts going well the way they thought it would and then you have to throw in the complications to really ratchet up the stakes and then you, oh, you always have to think about what else can go wrong and then you know you have to have these scenes where you know, they, more, more stuff comes at the good guys and they just literally sometimes go oh come on <laughs> so okay so Battlestar Galactica huge fan I'm guessing didn't take much from Star Wars no, <laughs> no, no, Star Wars, you don't want to go to Star Wars for, for realistic, uh, like the dog fighting in space in Star Wars, they, they, they do what a friend of mine calls spitfires in space, mm-hmm. you know, where they're banking and turning it, I don't have to, I love that when Battlestar Galactica came on, and they had the first battle where they actually properly, uh, in the first battle already in the miniseries where yeah. they started out, where they had proper Newtonian physics, it's like, why? bank the ship and make this long ass turn like if you're flying a spitfire at the at the battle of britain when you can just turn around the dorsal axis and turn the whole ship around and, and fly backwards and fire backwards at your at your pursuer yeah yeah you're you're correct yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i know I, I mean after all right george lucas did basically model it after dog fights so yeah it's yeah it's, people get cranky when you say that but this uh, star wars isn't science fiction it's science fantasy it's got yeah. knights with swords and you know it's and magic space magic <laughs> but it's got laser swords and yeah. those are really cool yes yeah no laser swords in your work no 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 just just i tried to because front lines is a hundred years in the future and i picked that date kind of arbitrarily because i wanted to have it far enough away that we have interstellar travel but not so far out in the future that i couldn't um, couldn't have a realistic depiction of how the technology, the military technology might have evolved and it didn't evolve super far because militaries are really slow at adopting new stuff and mm-hmm. you know, when they decide to procure new equipment you have to test it and have a, a procurement process that takes a decade or more where mm-hmm. they have to have trials and by the time it gets into service it's already two generations obsolete. Like the F-35. Well, the F-35 apparently doesn't even work. <laughs> so... I, I, I hear it works somewhat. It's better for the money that it costs. <laughs> yeah, well, was it like $35 million a plane <laughs> or something yeah, ridiculous? That's, that, that's about the figure I heard. Yeah, that's a lot of money for that, a plane that, that only sort of kind of works. So. Uh, well, we won't know until they actually stick him into battle. That's what they, the same thing I said about the Harrier, too. When, and I then remember, at the, yeah. in the, the Falklands War, the Harrier acquitted itself quite well. Yeah, and that actually raises a thing because I was looking on your blog and saw that you work. You appear to be working on something involving the Falklands War. Um, it's a story that I, I finished it actually. I turned it in uh, to uh, George R. R. Martin, who is the editor for the for the Wild Cards books, obviously. And uh, it's a it's a British themed story, and it takes place during the Falklands War. And uh, it has one of my superhero characters basically being embed- embedded with the. Um, British forces in the Falklands War, and uh, kind of, and I had to do a lot of research on the Falklands. I know I already, I, I thought I knew a lot about the Falklands <laughs> War, but it turns out I didn't. So I had to kind of binge watch all the documentaries and read all the stuff that's available on it. But it's a really interesting, for, in terms of a war, um, modern wars in the modern age, is really interesting because there wasn't a lot of combat force they brought to bear because the islands are so remote that. Um, 
in terms in terms of scale, it was nothing like World War Three would have been, but it was it was a very harsh and difficult to fight war because it was in the South Atlantic and the weather was lousy and the Argentinians and the British both operated at the very end of their, their line of supply. The Argentinian planes that came from the mainland to, to bombard the, uh, the invasion force basically had the, an average loitering time over the battlefield of like a minute or two. So they had just enough time to fly in, pop up, try to find a target in that minute and come in and drop their bombs and then take off otherwise they'd be running out of fuel so it was a really really under harsh conditions um, very short but intense war so it was kind of fun to do the research for that and then put a story in that time period because the Falklands War is something that especially American writers or American readers don't get to write or read about a whole lot because it's, it's not US it was a very short war and it involved the British and yeah. We kind of have the blind spots where it doesn't come to. You know, yeah, my guess war. is we. If you asked an American, a hundred Americans, what was the Falklands War? They couldn't they point could. to the Falklands on the map, much less tell. <laughs> yeah, they, they can't point, can point to Argentina on the map. But this actually brings me to a different, the other side of the question. So you had to do a lot of research for the Falklands War for your wild card story. How much did you have to delve into the wild cards universe to come up with the superhero character? For the uh, <laughs> let's just say that um, when I. Agreed to come aboard with wildcards happily. When, when George asked me, he, uh, the next thing he did was he sent me a big box of books <laughs> to do some back reading on because it's a huge universe. It's yes, like it 20, 20 odd books over over thirty years, yeah. you know, almost almost thirty books. I think it's like twenty seven or twenty eight at this point, and uh, that's a lot of reading. I haven't even read all of them yet. I've read all the first um, probably the first eight. And then I've read the ones in between that pertain to stuff that I needed to know for writing my stories, sure. my wildcard stories. I've written two novellas so far. Um, so, that, but that's a lot of reading. That's an awful lot of reading. Even I haven't read every wildcards book. So it's, it's a lot of. Books. And some of them are hard to track down because not all of them are on Kindle, and a lot of them are out of print. So, getting the whole set together is remarkably difficult. That's fantastic. So, do you have an ETA on? On, on wild cards, on the the British book doesn't have a release date yet, um, but I wrote another wild card story featuring a character, a really cool character that I made up called Khan, and he's a he's a, a, a what they call in the wild cards world a, world a Joker Ace. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Um, okay. And he's uh, he's basically he's he's like three hundred pounds and six three, so he's a big guy, and that and he has a the, the left half of him is a Bengal tiger, and the right half of him is a very muscular human. So he's kind of a boozer, and, and he works as an underworld bodyguard. So he's kind of like a, a little bit of an anti-hero. And he's very different from Andrew, who is my protagonist in, in uh, um, the Frontlines book. So every time I get to write Khan, it's kind of like taking a little vacation from, this, <laughs> from the sci-fi universe and just having fun with this, this, this badass, basically. So he's, he's got a story um, coming up in a book, a novella coming up in a book called Low Chicago that's going to be out in August from Tor. So what is that like? I mean, you've written six novels, firmly military science fiction, and suddenly you're asked to write fantasy. Well, how is how how's that switching out gears work? For it's you? great. It's great because it's like, especially with Frontlines, because Frontlines is written in first person present tense. So you're lit. I'm literally in the head of the same dude for six books, and <laughs> and having his inter internal monologue and his thoughts, and I have to be in his mindset. And then I get to write about some badass superhero that I created, so I know him, you know, top to bottom because I made him up. I don't have to 
consult anybody else what his abilities are. I can just make them up at the way I want to. And I get to have fun with him because he's, he's one of those snarky types that gets all the good <laughs> lines. Uh, so it's, it's kind of fun. It's like taking a vacation from my regular job to write the wild card stuff. It's awesome. That's awesome. So we're, we're getting towards the end because we can't talk to you for 12 hours, although it could be fun. Uh, well, maybe not. I think 12-hour talk. 12 hours by a little. The, the readers will probably get sick of hearing <laughs> the same dude for 12 hours. Um, so uh, aside from you know your new novel in the Frontline series and um, your wild cards, and the Falklands. Um, and, the, yeah. and the Falklands story, which will eventually be coming. Uh, you, are you working on anything else that you'd like to let, let people know about? Uh, yes, I am working on the first book in a new series for my current publisher, 47 North. Um, so the, the uh, Frontlines books were contracted through book six so far, and that one I just turned in, so now I get to write the first one in a new series. But then again, that will be different tense and different perspective. Um, so... It's just I want it to be different in voice from the from the um, frontlines novels, so they don't all read exactly the same. Sure. And and that one will be more like um, I, I don't quite know how to describe it just yet, but it'll be kind of like the, the Expanse meets Battlestar Galactica, like where the Expanse doesn't is 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 near future sci-fi, but it's kind of light on the military. Mine's going to be, because that's what I do, I do the military stuff, so mine is going to be sort of along the same vein, but it's going to be leaning uh, considerably more into military territory. Okay, that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, think Blackwater in space, basically. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Okay, excellent. All right, well, um, on that note, we've got to close it out. So um, so thank you so much, Marco. For, oh, you're welcome. For coming on. This was fantastic. So where can readers find you online? Uh, MarcoClose.com. And, uh, of course, if you go to Amazon, who is also my publisher, because 47 North is Amazon sci-fi imprint, if you go to Amazon and punch in my name, you're going to get the whole enchilada because they'll try to sell it all to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. So thanks again very much. And uh, on that note, I think I'll make it an awkward ending. Awkward ending. Yeah, awkward ending. And, and scene. scene. Welcome to the Skiffy Fanti Show. Building bridges, not walls, to Chinese SF with Crystal Hawk. <laughs> awesome. Okay. That's a great title. <laughs> it is. I'm Sean. I'm Paul. And we're obviously here today with Crystal Huff. Hello, Crystal. Hi, I'm Crystal Huff. So do you want to tell people who are you? Oh, goodness. Because you're like secretive and you do like a lot of stuff and you travel places. I do a lot of stuff. I counted it up the other day and apparently I've traveled to 18 different countries in like four or five years. And like... More than half of that was for fandom things, um, and some of that was for my other job. Uh, okay, so in the world, <laughs> I do. I, I have two careers. Uh, one of them is I am a feminist activist, and I go around the world uh, giving talks and workshops and working with companies and organizations, consulting stuff on addressing the oppressions of the curiarchy, like racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, ableism, classism, etc. And I work on imposter syndrome things. So that's one career track. Okay. Um, and that has taken me around the world, um, but particularly to a lot of English-speaking countries and, and the UK a lot. I also 
am an editor of science fiction in translation for a company in Beijing called the Future Affairs Administration. So I work with Chinese authors on the English translations of their work, and I have also just recently finished shepherding the organization through the process of becoming a CIFWA eligible market, uh, CIFWA science fiction and fantasy writers of America. Yes, you'll note CIFWA, <laughs> um, but CIFWA is trying to be a lot more um, explicitly international yeah. and. I said, hey, I'm working with this organization in China, and they actually do pay CIFWA-eligible rates. And if they're a CIFWA-qualified market, then they will bring a bunch of Chinese authors and editors into CIFWA, and then this organization will be a lot more multicultural, international, etc., explicitly. So those are the two career paths that I have. And then there's the whole thing where I run around the world for sci-fi <laughs> fandom and, like, you know... Talk to people about science fiction from a feminist perspective. I give some like talks on that, and and uh, I go to conventions and talk about other conventions and talk about Worldcon. So I think this is what you just said is like the long way of saying you're awesome. I, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure how to reply to that, particularly <laughs> since people can't see my face because my face is probably like beat red. A little red. No. <laughs> so, so like my family actually has pink paint chips on our refrigerator to compare to the color of pink that I turn when I blush. <laughs> so like, but the podcast people can't see that. So I'm really sorry. Um, so okay, so this leads me to a question, and I know we want to dive into to sort of your involvement in Chinese fandom, because um, there are a number of elements there, right? You've already kind of mentioned part of it, but I'm, I'm actually really curious, how did you get so involved? Because it's not like you just occasionally go over to China and like once in a blue moon, you're like, oh, by the way, there's some Chinese writers over here. You were actually pretty involved. So how did I get involved is, is like a similarly convoluted story to how did I get involved with WorldCon 75. And, and like, you know, with WorldCon 75, like I went to a Finnish sci-fi con and it happened to be two weeks after my grandfather had died and like it was really intense and Finnish fandom was like, here, we will hug you even though we're Finns, <laughs> you know, and I felt really welcomed and, and like people like showed their, their really, their really nice side and, and they were really, I really appreciated how they treated me then. So with Chinese fandom, like I... I was chairing Worldcon 75 and running around the world working on that project and, as I said, visiting lots of countries, talking to people about how they should come to Worldcon 75 and how they should bring more people from more countries to Worldcon 75. Which, like, did you notice how many countries participated in Worldcon 75? A boatload. Like, a lot. Like, way more than any previous Worldcon is my impression. Like, way more than one con. And there were more Chinese fans here. Then there were Irish fans at Worldcon 75. And like, Worldcon 75 has the first participation from like countries like Trinidad. And like, yes. like my, because I, I went to Trinidad and convinced my Trini friends to come. So, I, Peru, there's something from Peru here. here. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, yes, clearly this is the last day of the con and I have like completely wandered away from the point. <laughs> but like, I've been working on Worldcon 75. And I was talking with Ken Liu about how to encourage more participation on Worldcon 75 from Chinese fandom. And he said, actually, I know who's running the Chinese National Science Fiction Awards, and I could probably talk to them about having you go. And so all of a sudden, I get this invitation to go to China 
all-expense-paid trip for Whoa. three weeks and, like, run around the country, although obviously could not visit everywhere. Because sure. I don't know if you've noticed, China's really huge. It's, like, it's five like, miles across, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the map, it's five miles. <laughs> yeah, it's very big. Yes, China's really huge. But I visited several areas of Chinese fandom. And because it was their national annual awards, I met practically all of Chinese sci-fi authors who are active right now. Like they're they're only like forty to sixty. Um, it's really small still, and they're still kind of indie author ish. Why do you think that is? Uh, <laughs> so Chinese science fiction historically, um, before Three Body Problem. Mm-hmm was written for the purpose of teaching science to children. Hmm. Like, literally, educational purposes. Um, and the government sponsored things to help like disseminate information about science in a way that was fun and that children were attracted to. But it meant that Chinese science fiction was like, people saw it as like a youthful thing that they then gave up. And then Liu Xixin wrote his books, and everyone loved them. And... I mean, millions and millions of copies were sold in Chinese. And then they got translated into English, and people realized that Liu Cixin was getting awards in other countries. And prestigious awards are a big feather in their cap, and so people paid more and more attention to Liu Cixin in particular. And so he kind of became this emblem of science fiction is for adults too, even in China. And like, you should all read it. And I don't know if... Have you met Lucy Shin here? I've not. I've only seen him from a distance. So Lucy Shin is, is a really sweet guy who is really, I think, not sure what to do with the limelight. And so, like, he will go to... The, like, I met him at the Chinese National Awards the first time I met him. Um, and he he went, and then he invited everyone out to a restaurant afterwards. And I ended up sitting across from him at the table uh, at the Halal restaurant because um, I keep kosher, and that was the closest that they could manage. And so there are like <laughs> 40 of us sitting at this really long table, and I come in late, and they're like making room so that I can sit across from Lee Shin, and he starts polyling things on my plate <laughs> because he's worried that I haven't eaten anything recently enough <laughs> and like talking about his favorite science fiction and like he's just like really nice and and uh so he has talked a lot with people about writing more science fiction for adults and people listen to him a lot more particularly people in the government the government also like consults with him to try to figure out like mm-hmm. You're a science fiction author. Maybe you know how, like, in the future, we will want this to work. Um, they totally called him in on. I forget what exactly it was because calm brain. Um, sure. But it was it was it was one of those really um, amusing stories, which now I have totally failed to tell. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's okay because I think it gives a sense, right? Since you you went over there, you got invited to this this big shindig for the awards yeah and that led you to meeting a number of people and getting more involved and they were so warm-hearted and they were just like so excited to show me everything and everything was so beautiful and and there was just like a vast warmth and kindness 
from everyone I talked to and and, and they toted me around everywhere and they took me climbing on the Great Wall and and there's the saying in in China that you know you're not a real man until you've climbed the Great Wall <laughs> wow. and so so I, I go up the Great Wall and I and I hike a fair portion of it um, and I start learning bits of Chinese as we're going because because they say you know encouraging things to each other in Chinese and so like I learned Jiao which means pour some petrol on it, literally. <laughs> but it's like, come on, team, we can do it. Step and, on the gas. Yes, step on the gas. And, and so that's what people were saying to each other while we climbed the Great Wall together. Um, and then at the end of it, they were like, and now you are a real man. Oh. <laughs> it was great. great it was great. It was so awesome. That, that sounds like you had a really good time. You lucky, lucky person. I'm really sorry. I'm very fortunate. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I, I met a lot of people who were like, hey, we are interested in going to your Worldcon and helping staff it. And maybe in the future, China will run a bid for Worldcon again. And like, maybe this time China could perhaps win the Worldcon someday. Maybe, so we yeah. started talking about what that would look like and the differences between Chinese sci-fi events as they are now and Worldcon and like all of this stuff. So how are Chinese science fiction events different than... Yes, aim me in a direction and I will wander <laughs> off. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so Chinese sci-fi events uh, start out with government speeches. Hmm. And, and so like... This was a really big difference culturally. Like the mayor of Shanghai was at this event that that he was introducing. You know, he was officially opening the the science fiction festival. And like afterwards, um, I was in the quote VIP room and and wandering around trying to find my cup of tea. And I I found a cup of tea that no one had claimed. <laughs> and sat down, turned to the person next to me and said, Hi, I'm Crystal Hoff. I'm from the U.S. I'm really excited to be here. Do you speak English? How are you doing? Like, uh, how are you enjoying this event? What do you do? How do you like your job? And sort of just spilled all out. And the mayor of Shanghai turned to me and he said, I'm the mayor of Shanghai. And I do like my job for the most part, although sometimes the layers of government are quite difficult. <laughs> just very frank and... Just, the sweetest man <laughs> and I have no idea if he would remember me but I, I would recognize him walking down the street at this point <laughs> I, was, I was I was very uh, humbled <laughs> and he was really excellent and we, we chatted for a while uh, but yeah Chinese events uh, sorry I'm, I'm I'm capable of being steered um, Chinese <laughs> events have have some like government participation and sure. sponsorship because they care about the science in science fiction and they care about how it's communicated and educating people and they want to see more of it now that like it's a more prestigious thing so lucy lucy shen is like he's like how some people see isaac asimov and robert heinlein and arthur c clark and ursula Gwynn mm -hmm. and and like these women who and and men who were the frontier of original sci-fi, the first wave and whatnot, um, the classics. Like, Lucy Shen is doing that in China. And now you have a number of second wave Chinese sci-fi authors coming up. You know, Bao Shu and Xia Jia and Gu Xu and names of people that you don't recognize yet, Not but yet. you will. I recognize some of them because yeah. they wrote stories that were in Clark's World and other places. Yes. Right. 
So yes. I think Chimera was... My favorite oh, short story, like, out of one. China last year. Uh, so that was written by Gu Xu. Okay. Uh, who is... Um, now kind of a friend of mine, although she's really, uh, she blushes every time I say this. So maybe we're not close <laughs> enough friends yet because she's the one blushing. But um, she, she wrote that really amazing story about the possibilities of genetics in the future and yep. what humanity is. And she did a lot of research for it. She's actually, uh, professionally, she's an urban planner. Cool. So when I heard yeah, I that, I was kind of like, you know, I kind of would have expected something about how urban planning in the future would be. And she's like, no, that's boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so, so, okay, so we've kind of come to, we've talked about the conventions, et cetera, which leads me to the fact that you are involved in two Chinese groups, or, well, one group working on a, a convention itself, right? So you're part of the Future Affairs Administration, mm-hmm. which is a Chinese SF group, which you've mentioned before is working on translations and that kind of thing. But it's also associated with a convention it's running called Asia Pacific Con. So, yes, APSF, um, Asia Pacific Science Fiction, which is also nicknamed Another Planet, which, like, that's adorable. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, their, it's going to be their first... A science fiction event in China that's patterned off of a Worldcon type structure. Okay. Right. Um, so in in like the Chinese Nebula Awards, um, they have like a single panel track, and and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and like, you know, people people have lots of flashing lights and and multimedia behind them. I don't know if you saw like the video of Sarah Pinsker playing a song at the award ceremony. They made a whole like space and and uh, like starship themed thing behind Whoa. her on the big screen, and she looks epic. Wow! I have video. I should show you. It's <laughs> epic. Um, and and that was like. I don't. I don't think she even talked with them about that. They just automatically did it. Like, um, there, there are almost always like really big multimedia backgrounds to things, and like the part of the opening ceremonies was a bunch of people in the government like welcome everyone to the event. They turn around and they put their hand on the screen that's behind them, and the screen suddenly like shoots sparks out of their hands and like turns into this massive science fictional cube thing, and like it was just like really impressive graphic things. And there was like (laughs) there was a laser dancer in smoke, there's like shaft of smoke and a laser dancer. It's like lots of lots of shiny things, Um, and. Uh, and you might see some of that type of thing at Worldcon, but it, it's not, yeah, nowhere near to that degree. Not even yeah. like not even like a convergence. You generally don't get that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and like there are also a lot more like one-on-one interviews at Chinese events. Like that was uh, a primary focus, um, less a panel discussion and more an interview format. Um, or a lecture format. Um, I was asked to give a lecture at, at the award ceremony. Cool. Yeah, just like it, it feels very different. Um, and it's and it's like single track. There's one room, um, sure. and and the audience like comes in and out the entire time. Um, and and for anything that's spoken in English, there's also a Chinese translator, and so I had to figure out how to time things so I could say like three or four sentences 
pause, wait for the translation, three or four sentences. Sure. And uh, luckily, I became friends with my translator, and so he was <laughs> able to signal me, like, okay, I'm done translating that part now. <laughs> so what was attendance like? Oh. Well, uh, this is for a previous event, right? Yeah, so for, for the previous the... event, yes. Right. So we're talking... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So you're saying everyone's coming yeah. in out of, this, out of this room. Just like, how many people are in this room? Uh, so definitely a few hundred. Um, I don't know if it would have fit a thousand, um, but probably there were a few thousand at the event. Okay, um, I, yeah, and, and like anything that has musician at it, all of a sudden, all of a sudden gets a lot more mobbed. <laughs> like there's a there's a photo online actually of musician. Me and Yao Hejun, who's the editor of Science Fiction World magazine, uh, being edit, being, uh, interviewed by all of the seven, eight, and nine year olds who want to be reporters at the event. <laughs> That's adorable. And, and they're massive. They're crowd. Like, they're, they're a good 50 children around us. All asking questions. All asking questions and then taking a very formal, composed photo. <laughs> And, and like they had a whole Q&A session for seven, eight, nine-year-olds, maybe 10-year-olds who wanted to be reporters in the future cool. to interview the three of us. I find that really fascinating. Different. You don't find many 10-year-olds at Worldcon or Converges or any. Yeah, that's yeah. really, a really yeah, different it's culture. Unusual. Yeah. So, so when trying to explain how Chinese events are different, like I'm still getting to know them. Like I've, yeah. I've only been to, uh, during the time that I've been in China, I've been to like five official events and so i'm still trying to figure out like is this typical for a chinese event or is this typical for this chinese event oh, sure. or is this an anomaly even for this event you know i'm still trying to codify that right, and maybe um, on some level they're still figuring a lot of it out too yeah, yeah. because there's such a um a more uh new fandom and yeah. younger fandom uh, there are a lot of college kids who are the um, event runners, yeah. um, and that's that's kind of unheard of in in the U.S. That the college kids would be running the premier events of the nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but so APSFCon, um, mm-hmm. uh, another planet is going to be in the spring, and they're going to have more of a a Worldcon style format, more panel discussions, more um, like guest of honor level, and then just guests of the convention. Mm-hmm. Like, and and that's also that's also actually another aspect is that like because the Chinese science fiction author community is so small, mm-hmm. like they all know each other, they're all friends, they all go to workshops on science together so that they can improve their science fiction. But like having people come over from outside of China and speak at the events is something that is harder to convince people to do and more prestigious and and so like changes the format, you know, because people can talk to Sha Jia or or Gushu or Baoshu or Stanley Chen like almost any time they want. But like seeing Lucy Shin or seeing um, any author outside of China is a bigger deal, and so it will have more of a draw. So I'm not sure how they're going to plan for the crowds um, because 
uh, I don't I don't actually know how many millions of copies of Three Body Problem were sold in China, but it's millions of three. It's possibly tens of millions of copies of Three Body awesome. Problem just sold in Chinese. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so. So it could lead to a very very big large event. Yeah, big con. Yeah. Okay. So. so but we'll it's in see. spring. It's in the spring. Excellent. Yep. And the the Chinese Nebulas and the Chinese Galaxy Awards are in November this year. So. Okay, so we'll get this we'll get to hear about about those. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Um so okay, so we've talked about the FAA, the Future Affairs Administration. We've talked about um, another planet slash APSF, if I got that right. Mm-hmm. Um so what else can you tell us about Chinese fandom, Chinese SF that you think people I, really need to know? And I have, I have a specific question. Because we oh. talked a lot about the importance of science in Chinese SF. So how does fantasy fit into this? Oh, that's oh, it. So that's a really good question. Um, sorry, Sean, your question was my, fine. No, my question was garbage. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. No. no this, he's going to ask the controversial question because um, I remember this question came up in the panel. Yeah. yeah. So... so Chinese science fiction and Chinese fantasy are, unlike in the U.S., like two categories that just never mix mm-hmm. in a way that I find fascinating and a little weird. So I have a friend, uh, Mima, who wrote a fantasy novel that is incredibly popular mm-hmm. and and has sold a, a ton of copies. Um, and... Her fantasy novel is about a criminal who gambles with his own bones, like a murderer. Whoa. Yeah. And, like, really neat concept. And I'm waiting on Ken Liu to finish uh, figuring out, like, I think Ken recruited the translator for it so I can finally read it in English. But Mima <laughs> had given me the, like, short version. Um, so, like, she's really famous like amongst people who read fantasy and -hmm. science fiction writers in China don't read fantasy. And so none of them knew who I was talking about. Like that's how split they are is none of them knew who I was talking about. It was really weird. Yeah. Compared to in the United States where there is a division, but is much more fluid in the middle. I mean, you've, you've got Mary Robinette Call who writes science fiction and fantasy. You know, you've got Ken Liu who writes science fiction and fantasy. Or you have novels which is explicitly science, all the birds in the sky. Is it science fiction or is it fantasy? Yeah, exactly. Charlie Jane has, has caused, uh, hopefully the final death throes of the conversation that they can't be both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so in, in, in the Chinese literary um, world, like these are so separate that people don't know the the stars of the other world. Um, it's it's really fascinating, and yeah. and I will say that part of this is also probably my Chinese pronunciation. Like that that is probably totally a factor as well. When I say Mima, like I know who I'm talking about, and I can show them like the Chinese characters for her name. Sure. But I'm not confident that I'm pronouncing the intonation correctly. Because usually we talk over WeChat, so yeah. text. Um, so yeah, uh, but it 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 feels like there's a really big division there, like far more than I'm used to in uh, the Western sci-fi world. Um, and I don't, 
you know how like when you meet other cultures it's not that they're good or bad they're just different mm-hmm. like like this is one of those like i'm not sure if it's good or bad like i i have some some complicated feelings about it because sure. i think that people should read each other's work and and know how awesome each other are but it's also just like a completely different culture and it's yeah. not like i can go in there and say well I as an, I'm sorry, I just slammed the table. <laughs> I as an American, I'll try not to gesticulate wildly at the table. <laughs> I, I don't want to go in there and say I as an American need to tell you how to do this better. And, yeah. and that's also part of the like planning the, the event in the spring. Like I don't want to go in there and say, hey, I have all of this event running experience. I've chaired seven sci-fi cons, like blah, 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 blah. I can tell you how to do this because... I can maybe tell you how to do this in the U.S. Yeah. Like, I can maybe, maybe give some advice on how to do this in Europe. But, like, Chinese culture is different. And and there are things that I just didn't think about that, that are small but have a huge impact. Yeah, I think there's a part of that that when you're looking at another culture and if you just assume that a thing that you've seen that would be negative at home is automatically a judgment there. You run into the problem of, but that culture's reasons for why that thing exists could be drastically different. I mean, and and the thing there is also that it's not one culture. That's a good and, point, yeah. And so, like, one of the things that I discovered when running around China um, is that, like, I could only really dip my toes in a city before I was moved on to a different city. Um, you know, I spent, uh, like, the total amount of time I've spent in China so far is two months. Yeah. China is so much bigger than the U.S. Can you imagine only spending two months in the U.S. and then saying, oh, yes, I know what Americans are like. Well, I can, but I've lived here my whole life, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. like, like, you can't visit Houston and say, I know what Americans are like. No, you can't. You, you can't yeah. visit Maine and say, I know what Americans are like, right? Yeah. Like, like I can't visit Beijing and say, I know what Chinese people are like. I can't exactly. visit Shanghai or Chengdu or, or Xi'an and say, I know what Chinese people are like, because those are very different places. And so, like, I, like uh, Shanghai, no, sorry, Chengdu is in the Sichuan province in China. And so the Sichuan province is known for its spicy food. So I preloaded, before going back to China the second time, I preloaded and prepped. And I was like, I have to eat all the spicy food in the U.S. possible so that I can manage to not embarrass myself when visiting the Sichuan province and eating hot pot with, you know, Yao Haijun and and, uh, everyone. So they still gave me the mild hot pot. (laughs) just a spoiler at the end of the story Um, but because hot pot is such a part of in particular Sichuan culture like people are sitting around the hot pot working out business deals and hot pot does not happen in that way in all areas of China for example it's no, but that sounds amazing. Everything's Actually, fine. To, to eat hot pot <laughs> in Sichuan province, I'm jealous. It was amazing, and the food was the food in China is amazing. It's incredible, and everyone should go. That's that's my. That's, you're just teasing. That's us your now. takeaway. That's my yes. If you take nothing else from this, everyone should go to China. The visa process is totally worth it, and it wasn't 
that bad. And like, I, this is also just in general one of my hobby horses. Like Americans don't leave the U.S. often enough. They don't. No, so, very insular. Americans are very insular. America is best, and you don't need to go anywhere. This reminds me of sidebar the Truman Show. <laughs> the movie The Truman Show. Do you remember the movie? I have not it? seen it. Okay, it's the Jim Carrey one where he. He's, he's actually, living inside a reality show, but it's like an right, actual and, city that's built, yeah, that's built in and a everyone's dome. actors, but the main main character. So yeah. everyone is literally an, an NPC. Yes. Yes. And and they, and and he he's an explorer by heart, but they manufacture ways to keep him on this fake artificial island and try to convince them this is the best place. And the actors say, "Oh yeah, why would I go anywhere else?" We see a brief head view of a headline of newspaper: "Who needs Europe? European." European scientists to come to islands like like everyone else is everyone else is crap. This is the good place. It's like I feel for Truman. It's like poor Truman wants to leave and he's just stuck there. And it's a satirization of those who just think that staying in your hometown or your home city is the best thing. I like traveling the world. I'm glad I'm in Helsinki. I mean, if you don't travel the world, how can you know that the place you call home is great? You have nothing to compare it to. The alternative is you find out that the places you live isn't great. And then you know. <laughs> that's, a, that's the fear. <laughs> then yeah. you know. And then the you fear. know. No, but isn't I mean, that the point, though? Like, you go and you visit other places and you see how people do things. You go, you know, that thing they do with that thing, that's a good idea. Maybe yeah. we should try that. Yeah. Like, yeah. like all of a sudden, like, your mind expands. Like, Sure. Just food alone is a great example, yeah. right? If nobody went to China and ate food in China however long ago or brought it, immigrants came over and brought their food and we ate it, we would just be eating hot dogs. And that would be oh, American God. cuisine, hot dogs <laughs> and like cheap burgers. And that would be all we would eat in America. That would be a travesty. That would, yeah. be, a, that, that would be a horrible gastronomic state. America yeah. would suck without Chinese food. Like that's just full stop. Just saying. I agree. <laughs> I'm there. Um, but, like, yeah, I don't know where to go from there. No, no, it has nothing to do with science like, fiction. Like, I don't want yeah. to slam the U.S. I got Actually, I got a whole bunch of people uh, online telling me that I hated Americans because I had, like, sided with the Finns and blah, blah, blah. Sided? Yeah, sided? Like, what? So, like, in the, in the bidding for Worldcon, I was like, I want Worldcon to be in Helsinki for the first time, even if it means I can't afford to go. Because when we started bidding, sure. I could not afford to go to Finland. Sure. I was just like starting out at a startup job. I was not making a lot of money. It was like, I still believe in this thing that we say, this is the World Science Fiction Convention. And, you know, Worldcon had been in North America all but what was it, all but 14 times in the 75 years? Something so, very, very yeah. small. And the number of times it hasn't been in an English-speaking country. Is four. Four times it's been in a location that was not first English-speaking. Germany? Japan. So, Japan. But anyway, we already... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're, well, well, sidebars. But anyway, so you, so you subscribe to the idea that I subscribe to, which is that it should be, it should embrace the idea of world. Yeah. Right. We should yeah. see the world. I mean, we tell people we want to meet aliens. We tell people we want to go out there and into space and, like, have Chell Lindgren himself, like, welcome aliens. Like, yes, we want to meet them. 
And then we can't even be bothered to meet ourselves and our own humanity. We don't even think of people in other countries as human. And in some cases, we don't. Yeah. People, some, sometimes not even our certainly, own country is human. Yeah, and we certainly don't treat other people like humans. And, and that really, I mean, that's why I do all of these things that sort of congeal into a crystal-shaped person. <laughs> like, I cohere into this, <laughs> my, the powers combined of, you know, caring about... Going around the world and meeting new people and, and experiencing new things and talking to lots of people in different cultures and, and sharing. And I, I think that that's, that's what's important in life. And I spend like two weeks out of four at home in Boston because I'm so busy going elsewhere. Yeah. But so where are you off to next? What's next on the crystal? Okay. The crystal ball. Uh, next to the crystal ball. Oh, you're terrible. Um, Sorry. So I've been invited to go to uh, Israel for one of their annual conventions. Cool. Um, cool. Icon uh, in uh, October. And then I'm going to go, uh, or at least I'm hoping that I'm going to go to the annual Chinese Sci-Fi Awards in November. Um my September looks remarkably free, which is really exciting because I haven't been home for four weeks in a row in a year. <laughs> but, um, but I think I'm going to be home for September. And yeah, just continuing to go around the world and talk to people and bringing more people into the sci fi fold. Yeah, and, and like I get to introduce the coolest people to each other. Like, I got to introduce Ted Chang and Lucy Shin to each other. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and like, it, like I got to introduce my friend Martin, who works on the, the translation rights for Three Body Problem, to my friend in Finland, Satu, who's a Finnish uh, translator and publisher. And so now Three Body Problem might be translated and published in Finnish. That like, would be really cool. Like, I I get to introduce my friends to my other friends, and I do totally fail at the geek social fallacy of everyone who's my friend should be friends sometimes. And I know it's a problem, and that's something I'm working on. <laughs> but, like, I love everyone. I want everyone to be friends with each other because they're all friends with me. By I default. understand this completely. That's fantastic. Okay, so we've talked actually a lot longer than we originally I'm really allotted. Sorry. <laughs> it is totally Crystal's fault because she decided to tell stories yes. instead of just giving five word answers to every question. Right. What are you doing? Jeez. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, but well, let's let's make sure people know where to find all of these things. So where can they find you, um, Asia oh. Pacificon, and um, FAA? Yes. Um, so. The FAA has a website which is now translated into English as well, right. which is FAA2001.com. Okay. Um, Asia Pacific Con is one of their events, so there will be information about the con on that website. Okay. Um, also, Chinese culture being completely different from American culture, like the way that they communicate things is actually through WeChat and Weibo. So if people are actually interested in this stuff, what I recommend is getting a WeChat like uh, account. Go on WeChat and follow like the FAA and Storycom and Science Fiction World Magazine and Apple Corps and the Asia Pacific Con account. And like all of these things have really adorable animals that speak for their their event. <laughs> There's like 
a hamster named science fiction author who is the spokesperson for the FAA. I kid you not. <laughs> science fiction author. That's adorable. Really adorable. Um, now he has science fiction apprentice just joined the team. <laughs> it's really adorable. Um, anyway, so you can find them online there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account for fandom and, and personal stuff is Crystal Visits. And my Twitter account for more professional things, which I use far less often and really should use more often, is at Crystal M. Huff. Um, that's H-U-F-F. Yes. Um, like a huff and a puff. Yes. So, sorry, one more story. Uh, <laughs> okay. So my maiden name is Hill. Okay. And my married name is Huff because Steve's last name is Huff. And we did rock, paper, scissors on who got to change their last name. And I won, so I got to change my last name. But when we were first starting out together, like Crystal Hill, Steve Huff, and we had two cats. And so we decided that their last names were Puff. So we were the Huff Hill Puff household. (laughs) Yes! You cannot see their faces, podcasters, but that was a win. You are are nerds. (laughs) Total nerds. Yes. So anyway, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Um, I also have a website with a blog, which I sometimes update, which is crystalhuff.com. And, and those are ways that you can find me. Yep. And the about page has, you know, lists to all the things that Crystal does. So if you're, in case you're interested uh, in having uh, her out for, for a lecture or speech or something. That's sure. That's she can be hired. You can hire her. It's true. I right. This is the end of our like promo crystals yeah. job yes. stuff. Okay, because that like that's not necessary. I do I do love what I do, um, and I appreciate you promoting it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, well, anyway, so so thank you so much, Crystal, for taking 852 hours out of your day for us. It was only 851. Oh, I'm sorry, 851. <laughs> that was a really long day. You know, Did we cross the national, the international dateline during Well, that? so in Finland, as you've learned, because you've been here before, right, time doesn't actually work here. Right. So especially when, you know, you get the time weird... Time has been yeah, displaced. Yeah. It just gets temporarily displaced and then everything goes to normal. So, but anyway, so thank you, Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thank you. Yep. And uh, on that note, I guess we'll make it an awkward ending. Hence. <laughs> Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. Declining declensions and condemning conjugations with David Peterson. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Paul. And we're here with David J. Peterson. Hello, sir. Hello. Nice to see you. So, people may know you because you did some work. Yeah. That's kind of important. They probably heard it on TV a few times. They probably screamed it at people on a subway somewhere. Indeed, I did create the Sandive language for the CW show Starcross. <laughs> you did? I did. You did do that, yeah. Uh, you are also obviously known for Dothraki and other works on uh, HBO's Game of Thrones and generally being a giant Conlang nerd. Oh, yeah. So, 
uh, you were, I know from your bio, you, you list yourself as a linguist. Uh, so obviously you have an interest in language, but I'm curious what led you to, like, when, when did you transfer over to, I'm going to, I'm going to like invent languages for fun. It was actually not long after I discovered linguistics. So I, I went to college with the intent of being an English major. Um, and I, I went in as a declared English major and was doing that for a year very happily. But I also was very interested in language, so I was taking as many as I could. In the first year, I took a semester of, uh, two semesters of Arabic, a semester of Russian, and a semester of Esperanto, which was the first ever created language I had heard of. I saw it advertised basically on a little piece of paper as I was walking in my dorm, and so I thought, all right, I'll do that. Um, and then the year after that, I'm sorry, the, the semester after that, uh, my mother was trying to convince me. She says, you're going to love linguistics. You should take it. And I didn't even know what it was. But there was an intro course that fulfilled one of the breadth requirements that I needed to, to do. And so I said, fine, I'll, I'll sign up for it since I needed an elective in this semester anyway. So I did that along with French. Uh, Basically, in my first linguistics class, I absolutely fell in love with it. It was, I mean, so different, obviously, from English, where you're reading books and writing papers. This one, there were no papers. Not a single paper for the entire course. You didn't have to do it. There were actual tests and class tests and homework, so it was just amazing to me. And uh, all we were doing was talking about language. So about, like, uh, a couple of weeks in, we started talking about morphology very seriously. And it was at that time that I thought, well... So many languages do this, this, and this. I wonder if I could make a language, rather than for international communication, like Esperanto, for myself, that did the following things that I wanted to do. And then basically, as soon as I came up with that idea, I started doing it. I started creating language in my notebook right then. And uh, that was uh, 17 years ago. Wow. Okay, so you've yeah. been at this for a while. Yeah. Um, Almost half my life, not quite, a couple of years before that's true. <laughs> so, okay, question then, because you, you mentioned, right, taking a number of language classes. How many languages that are real do you speak? Uh, natural languages, we call them, because, of course, if you create a language, then it exists basically as much as any other. Oh, fair point. Um, yeah. Natural languages I studied in chronological order. Uh, well, I, 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 my family spoke Spanish, so I had English and Spanish, but then I started studying um, German, uh, on my own Latin, uh, then Arabic, Russian, uh, Esperanto is created languages, language, but I did take a course in it. French, um, on my own, I studied uh, Turkish and Hawaiian while I was in college. I also took a course in Middle Egyptian hieroglyphs while I was in college. That was a fantastic opportunity. Um, Swahili, I started looking at American Sign Language uh, in graduate school, uh, the Moro language of Sudan. Uh, when I was in graduate school, we did field methods on that. Uh, I became very interested in Inuktitut, in particular the two dialects I looked at with Siglatun and Ummarmiut in uh, northern Canada. Um, studied those a very bit. Then when, I, then when I actually got back to studying languages, I studied um, in order Akkadian, uh, Attic Greek, Modern Greek, Hindi, Japanese, uh, and Finnish, actually, in preparation for coming here. Um, <laughs> And I think I think those are all the ones that I've devoted serious time to. That is a lot of languages. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, I am gobsmacked by the <laughs> breadth of your linguistic ability. I have to I have to put <laughs> new languages in my head with a hammer. You just seems like you just suck them up. Oh, it's so much fun. Tokpising, that's another one I've studied a bit. Yeah. Oh, where's that from? It's a uh, it's a Creole language of Papua New Guinea. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, so let's let's dive into some specifics because mm-hmm. right, you've worked on a, a couple of uh, created languages, uh, including one that I think you're expecting we were going to talk about, which yeah, is yeah. Dothraki. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, because there were there are a couple of, of mentions in the books, but for the most part, it's pretty much invented based on kind of that as I guess the starting point. Yeah. Um, what were some of the the roots for where you drew from? Like, because obviously you're pulling from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where were kind of the the basis that you started from when you were putting everything together? Uh, the books for Dothraki, one hundred percent the books. Just everything is based on the books. You yes, pulling from uh, anywhere. Okay. The, yeah, there were only um, there were fifty six words, um, or at least individual words of Dothraki in the books. I think twenty six or twenty eight of those are names. It's it's in my book where I actually counted up every single one. So oh, wow. the real numbers are there. But uh, so the ones that weren't names, there were a few uh, just one off words here and there. Like Hrana, we knew that was a word for grass. Hrakar is the word for lion. It's just a one off. It's like all right, that's the word for that. Uh, but then there were a few phrases. Um, and basically anytime you have two words that are next to one another and it's not simply a list uh, that is evidence of grammar, because oh. there's always the very simple choice of which one comes first. And so, like, for example, Weiss uh, Dothrak. We know that that's uh, the, the name of the one city that the Dothraki have. Uh, and then, based on pretty obvious evidence, you know that Dothrak has something to do with the Dothraki. Yeah. And so, Weiss has to be the word for city. And so then, you know, all right, city is the thing we're talking about. The other word is the modifier. Here we have evidence that the thing you're talking about comes first and the modifier comes second. Is there anything in the book that supports that ordering as being consistent? And so then you go and look at the other examples. For example, um, this is all from the first book. Uh, the um, the crones in the Mother of Mountains chant uh, Rach, Rach, Rachaj, which is translated in the book as a boy, a boy, a strong boy. If you're going to interpret that the simplest way possible, the word for boy has to be rach, and the other word for strong has to be haj, and you see that the ordering is rach, haj, thing you're talking about, modifier. I went through all of the examples that George R. R. Martin did, and he was surprisingly consistent that the word comes first, the modifier comes second. And so that gives you evidence of what the grammar of Dothraki is. So I analyzed all of the material that was in the books, and then based the grammar on that, and just expanded into areas that he that he didn't touch on. Okay. And how much latitude would you given by George and by the show to expand like that? Well, essentially, we had infinite latitude because of the nature of how I came to the show. So this wasn't like I was hired directly for the show. I wasn't. It was a competition uh, amongst language creators. It was announced to language creators all over the world online. And so anybody who wanted to, to uh, could compete to create the Dothraki language, and many did. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, because of that, I was not working directly with George R. R. Martin. I wasn't working directly with the producers. It would have been inappropriate. Either that or incredibly taxing on their time, given the yeah. nature of the competition. Uh-huh. There was like 40 people. Um, so, in effect, um, the latitude I was given was based on that they chose what I did and approved of it. They could have just chosen somebody else or not chosen anybody and said, all of the proposals took too many liberties. By essentially choosing mine, they agreed with what I did, and so I proceeded in that manner. But it was very, very important to me to create something that, first of all, meshed 100% with what was in the books, um, and second, included every single word that was in the books, and, and then uh, third, 
um, once I was using words that weren't in the books at all, people would look at it and say, well, no, that it looks like it's about the same. So that if you were to present stuff that I did and look at the books with no other information, they would say this is the same stuff. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, so I, I want to backtrack too, because I know you've, you've been interested in this. What do you enjoy the most about mm-hmm. uh, putting together languages, what, whatever they may be? What, 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 what like fires you up when you're doing it? Sure. But if I could back up, do you think it would be better to say what was the funnest? Sure. <laughs> no, most fun is better. Most fun is better. It sounds awkward, but it's better. Um, really? Yeah, that's that's the English fun. major in me talking. The linguist in me says either is okay. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> just depends on what you want to do. But um, for me, uh, there, there are two parts. Um, one is usually creating the... Uh, the morphological bit that I'm most interested in, because usually all the languages that I'm creating uh, are built around some sort of morphological idea that I find to be the most interesting. So um, with uh, with like with High Valyrian, it was it was the the noun declension system. I mean, I had to start with the verbs and get them out of the way, but the thing that interested me the most was the noun declension. Um, with Dothraki, it was actually the verbs and how they were going to work. Um, in conjunction with the very small number of noun cases I did. Uh, so I really, once I identify it, I really love tackling that and tangling it and teasing it out and, and testing it out, seeing how it works. Um, because there's a bit of trial and error there, especially as you're assigning phonological values to these things. Once you start testing out sentences and you realize, wow, we're going to use this suffix a whole lot and it has this sound. And so if you put it in sentence after sentence after sentence, it sounds a little off. You know, maybe if it's an S, now it's like everywhere. So, like, you get to go back and tweak a little bit. So that's a lot of fun. After that's done, though, uh, I have the most fun just sitting down and coining words. Because basically when you're coining words, you're telling miniature stories about the histories of those people. Uh, Because, obviously, it was important enough for them that they had this word or it was necessary for them to have this word. And then there's a number of ways you can go about it, either creating a brand new root or deriving it from some other means, making it a compound, making it a metaphorical extension of some other word. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of choice involved there. And uh, it also kind of, it doesn't force you, but it suggests to you other words in that semantic domain so that you create one word and then basically you spill out and say, okay, well, if we have a word for this, what about other things in this domain of experience? If you're creating a word for like a cooking pot, it's like, well, what different types do they have? They have a, a great variety of them or a small variety of them. For something like the Dothraki, it's like, are they going to have big ones? Uh, or is that not? does that not really make sense with a nomadic lifestyle? Because they're going to have to carry all this stuff. What's it made out of? Because we know that they don't really deal in iron as, as much unless it's with, with weapons. Um, so all of these questions kind of just uh, are suggested to you. And it's just fun to sit down and kind of put yourself in their shoes and think about how they might describe the world. Cool. So, so what are the differences in creating a language when you're using the Roman alphabet and when you're making an alphabet of your own? Like, I know a couple of your languages that I came mm-hmm. across in your book had completely new ways of, of writing out languages. Yeah, so yeah, what's, yeah. The, what's the difference in the process? Well, first of all, if you're talking about a spoken language, the primary is always the speech. All right. And then it's just a method of how you're going to indicate to another human being in our world how those things are, are supposed to be pronounced. 
We have the international phonetic alphabet for that. Oh. But of course, that involves a whole extra set of characters that most people are not familiar with. Now, when I'm creating languages for shows, obviously I'm dealing with writers and actors. And so what I do is I create a romanization system. And that romanization system is just using the English alphabet, usually with no diacritics if possible, mm -hmm. and usually using digraphs that make sense to the people that are going to be reading it. Um, but that is itself, it's not a part of the fictional world. You know, It's just for our purposes. And you can do that at any point in time. It's just a transcription system. So like you know, Dothraki, for example, doesn't have a written form at all. Um, so that what I create is just for us. When it comes to languages that I do create writing systems for, I still have the romanization system because that's what the actors are going to use. Mm -hmm. And it's still 100% regular and should make sense to an English speaker. That's always the goal. But the writing system that I end up creating, the orthography, that's different. Um, there you have to take into consideration how did these people invent writing? What were they writing on? What were they writing with? And how did those methods change over the centuries? Because that tells you more about how a writing system evolves than anything in the language itself. Um, so usually what I do is I decide on an early state and say this is where writing was invented. And I decide if I'm going to go as far back as pictographs because all writing ends up coming from there, ultimately. Um, and if not, where I'm going to start. I figure out what the language was like at that stage, so I have to figure out what sounds they thought they were going to need, then how that was going to change moving forward, and how spelling was going to evolve. And that's how you get irregular spellings, by the way, is that the language changes how it's pronounced and the writing system doesn't keep up. That's why English is the way it is. We're, we're writing the language as if we were still pronouncing it in, in the 12th century. Um, but obviously the sounds have changed quite a bit. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And basically it's an art piece. Um, and it's one of the parts that I enjoy the most uh, when I'm able to do it. So I think it's really interesting because I know that so often, right, when we talk about uh, created languages, right, we think of like Tolkien, et cetera, right, creating it as part of his world building, mm -hmm. right? But the way you talk about it is in some way, like in your head as you're coming up with this stuff, you are building a world. Yeah. in your head of, that these people have to live in, but you're coming at it just from a, a different, like we're not looking at the map anymore, we're looking at a slightly different angle. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear that that being said, because I, I think we always think of created languages as something that's part of world building, but not as world building in and of itself. It's almost like, um, if you think about world building in total, um, the world, the environment exists first, and then the people come, and then their, their language emerges. So you need to have that world in place and a good idea of what it's going to look like and feel like to figure out how your speakers are going to react to it. Sure. And that was one of the things that was actually great about coming to George R. R. Martin's universe and creating the languages, because he had the world there. And I got as much of it as I could from the books to figure out all right, what is it really going to be like to be a person who's living here with this level of technology? Um, you, can, you can also certainly do it the other way where you're also a part of the world building. There's just a lot, a lot to do. Yeah. It's, it's almost better suited to several different people. Yeah. yeah. So how much of the family tree of the of uh, Dothraki and High Valerian do you know or have mapped out that we just haven't seen that you've 
figure out, okay, they evolved from this language to what we see today. How much is that is in your head or just in your yeah. mind or actually written down but never seen on the show or anywhere else? Well, um, I can only go off of what George R. R. Martin has laid down as canon. So the Dothraki tree is pretty small right now, simply because I don't know what other what other people they 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 came from originally speaking this language. So I have the early state, which I just call protoplanes, that has two daughters. One is Dothraki, and then one is Lazarine, because mm-hmm. they uh, are supposed to come from the same people and originally then had the same language. That's now split into two when there is a great cultural divide between the Dothraki and the Lazarine. Obviously, given the nature, uh, the nomadic nature of the Dothraki, there's not going to be one Dothraki language. Basically, there's going to be a lot of different um, sub-dialects based on the Kalasars and where they go and where they range. Uh, they'll still need to be able to communicate in Vice Dothrak, but um, nevertheless, they're going to speak a little bit differently. Everybody's going to have their own accent. If that continues, and especially if they ever start to settle down, which I think you have to assume they would, even if it's going to take two, three, five hundred years. Um, I expect those to diverge into different languages. Um, so maybe for when we uh, have our future uh, Game of Thrones, so not a prequel, but a sequel sometime far in the future, we'll have different <laughs> languages. Now, whether the Dothraki are actually supposed to be related to the Jogos Nahai, I don't know. Um, I don't know if they're intended to be an entirely separate group of people that have their own languages, or if ultimately those languages should be connected to the Thraki. I have to wait to hear from George R. R. Martin on that. Now with, uh, with High Valyrian, we have a much better picture. We know that there was High Valyrian. We know the situation which caused High Valyrian to change into the form that it is in Slaver's Bay. And we know that the languages that are spoken in the free cities are all descended from High Valyrian and also suitably changed. So I have a good picture of that. I haven't been able to flesh it out just because it hasn't been called for in the show outside of Slaver's Bay. Um, but at least I was able to do that, so that was a lot of fun. And I have a lot of notes and ideas about how the Free Cities languages would actually work if I were given the opportunity to do them. That would be fun to do one yeah, day. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> it would be a lot of fun. Okay, so I know we're getting a little long on time, and I, I want to ask a, a question that's a little less specific to the, to the show yeah. and more about as a conlang person mm-hmm. um, and, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to uh, which I'm curious like what are some of in your you know given all the years you've been working on this kind of stuff that you see are like the big mistakes when people go to make a language oh yeah 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 usually uh, everybody uh, makes usually everybody's first language is very bad um, <laughs> and that was and I was no exception to that my first language was awful um, the most important thing that one has to do is decide very early on what the purpose of the language is going to be. So like with my first language, I was just creating it. And so I started doing things with it that were mutually contradictory. One, I was just creating it for myself. And then two, I thought it was going to be a really good language to present to the world, an artistic creation, um, which meant that I probably should be having considerations other than what I just find interesting. Then I also wanted to make it easy to learn uh, but also grammatically interesting. Those things are often mutually exclusive. Um, at least, especially what I was doing with the grammar was more complicated for somebody that was just going to pick it up. It wasn't going to. It wasn't going to be easy to learn. Um, and then also, I started learning things in my linguistics courses, and I thought, oh, like you know, I was learning all sorts of new things. I was like, oh, I guess languages have to do that and that and that. 
So I started shoehorning them in, and suddenly it became a monstrosity, and it wasn't even something I liked anymore. So it fulfilled none of those possible goals, which meant that there was just no reason for it to exist. I mean, you basically just had to give it an up or down, you know, thumbs up vote, you know, and that was it. So it's better to have a very clear understanding of what you're doing with it and stick to that at the outset. Are you trying to make this something that is a realistic part of a fictional world? Is it going to be something that's more of a parody or a joke, which is cool to do, but just you know, lean into that? Are you making it for your literal day-to-day -day use? In which case, you're going to want to have a lot of easy-to-learn words for you personally. Mm -hmm. Do you want other people to learn it? Well, maybe take them into consideration. So um, a lot of these goals are, are mutually exclusive. Um, and so knowing what that goal is at the outset is extremely important. And then, of course, once you settle into one of those, then there are separate considerations just for each of those categories um, that, you know, we could go into, but it starts to balloon. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, well, Paul, I will give you last quick question before we close out. So what prompted you to write The, the Yard of Language Adventure? Oh, well, I mean, frankly, I've always, I've always wanted to write a, a book teaching people to create languages. But also, um, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I did kind of independently invent the idea of creating languages. Many language creators did. I'd say before, before Game of Thrones, really, before Avatar, before you know everybody knows about it, lots of us independently invented the idea. Just you know, thought, oh, this is a thing to do, so let's do it. Uh, it wasn't until the '90s that, uh, and the internet came about, that people actually started to meet one another. There would be language creators who would go their entire lives with, without ever meeting another language creator, because it was something that was not really discussed. It was not something that was very well accepted by the general public. You know, often people would tell them that they create languages and it would elicit laughter, you know, or ridicule, or worse, their stories. Um, so I found the language creation community a, a year after I started creating languages, and that was really where I started to get good. Because I started looking at everybody else's work. Initially, I was very jealous and thought I was the best. You know, you have, you have to get over that. Once I did, I started looking at other people's work and was like, this is amazing. They know how to do this, and I want to learn how to do this too, and I learned a lot from them. The problem is, with new language creators, um, they're not coming to the old bulletin boards or mailing lists because that's not how people interact with the internet anymore. And so a lot of that knowledge that was just collective knowledge of everybody on these mailing lists has been lost. And I see new language creators making the same mistakes that we did years and years ago that's so that are just you know done nobody would do them anymore and so part of the reason that we wanted to have a, that i wanted to have a book is to codify that knowledge everything that i learned from the language creation uh society everything i learned from the conling listserv i wanted it all there so that new people would actually be able to learn it and get through that muddy period and kind of get to the next step okay all right i like quick question sure uh two well there are two super quick questions uh Favorite language that's not your own, yeah. right? That has been created, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, can you can you say goodbye in Dothraki? No, of course. Um, I have a whole host of language created languages that are my favorites. They're not my own, but probably my most favorite is uh, is um, if I had to choose absolutely one, probably Caitlin by Sylvia Sotomayor, who's here, by the way. Oh. She's uh, yeah, she just she attends WorldCon all the time. Um, but she's probably the best 
living language creator, I think. Um, and she keeps getting even better. Uh, I would say her new language is my favorite. Once she's settled on its, its, its present state and gives it a name and says, okay, now this is it, I'm not going to change it anymore. <laughs> but she keeps changing it. And each time, each iteration gets more brilliant than the last, and I don't even understand how she does it. It's amazing. <laughs> so, so that's my favorite. And um, so, yeah, goodbye, Nothraki. A uh, couple of different ways to say it. But probably the best way is to say hajas, which Hajus. means strength to you. I don't know, I'm more Happy high Valyrian fan because I'm no a more civilization, not nomad. Oh high Valyrian? Yeah. Gerosilas. And that means uh, may the path lie straight before you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well perfect. Well thank you so much, David, for coming on and talking to us about your work and, and conlang and everything. I appreciate it. Alright, thanks for having me. Cool. And on that note guys, awkward ending and, and scene. scene. listening to the show if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us at skiffy at gmail.com on twitter at skiffy and on facebook at the skiffy and show and on patreon at patreon.com slash our intro and outro music comes from the launch by chronux you can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org